Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went upon the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice said to him again, What God has made clean, do not call common. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Christ Community's downtown campus. Uh, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here, and Gabe has mentioned it already, but this is a very special Sunday because we are heading back to two services. We are here now. You're in the first of our two services and not three services. Uh, gives us great joy because it means more of our church family gets to see more of each other every Sunday. And then you know me, church, I am always looking for an excuse for ice cream, so I cannot wait uh, to the little social that we have in just a few minutes. And it seems appropriate that we're having big celebration uh, this Sunday because summer is in many ways the seasons of celebrations, is it not? I know that summer is the season of weddings, um, it is the season of pool parties, the season of backyard barbecues, uh, the season of outdoor concerts and festivals, and of course as well, summer is the season of graduation parties. Now you should know that this week I got um, a little nostalgic, a little sentimental at home. My uncle just wrapped up his doctoral work and so there was a big party for him in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And thinking about that party got my mind kind of considering my own high school graduation. Now, you should know I didn't go to my college graduation, and that's another story for another time. And I tried to get out of my seminary graduation, which, again, um, another story, another sermon. But my high school graduation, it was this all-out party. And so this week, I dug into the uh, Tyler Cherneski archives and found a couple gems from this open house. So I don't know, did any of you have like these big, uh, what is this, a scrapbook, right, at the graduation? I'm seeing some not, uh, knowing your mom, she made quite the scrapbook, didn't she? Yeah, so this is the Cherneski family scrapbook. There was scrapbooks that I found looking through kind of a highlight reel, you know, of life uh, prior to age 18, and then also found notes that people gave me at the party, handwritten notes uh, with great advice, great direction, great wisdom, uh, good recollection of past memories. So I'm, you know, taking this trip down memory lane, 
this past week, and it got me thinking about the transition that we're making this morning in our collective study of God's Word. You see, I was looking at notes, some very specific personalized messages to me around a special occasion giving advice and direction for the future, looking at scrapbooks, uh, very much a summary statement, kind of a highlight reel, the greatest hits, right? And it got me thinking about the fact that we're moving from what in many ways is a whole lot like this note, a letter specific letter, Galatians, that Paul wrote to a church giving very specific direction. That's what we've been studying for the past eight weeks, right? Back to the book of Acts, which I could argue in many ways is like the scrapbook of the early church. I mean, this is the highlight reel of God's work when he's forming his people on earth. Acts tells story after story. It gives snapshot after snapshot of great displays of God's power as he propels his church forward into their mission. And so, uh, We're heading back to the scrapbook. We're leaving the letter behind. We're moving to the scrapbook. And we're going back again to our series that we called Sent. The last time we studied the book of Acts in January, February, March, and April, we were in this broad series called Sent, right? And the theme of that series reminded us that followers of Jesus, um, Jesus' first community, the church, was sent into the world with a message of good news and a message that was always intended to be shared with everyone, everywhere. And so this morning, we're coming back to that Sent series. We're picking up the book of Acts. We're going to be studying it once more, chapter by chapter. We're going to look at the ways that the good news of Jesus, this good news that changes lives, spread throughout the Mediterranean region in the first century. And it starts this morning as we're diving into Acts chapter 10 and 11 specifically. And this morning, I think, as we dive into these two chapters of God's Word, I think we'll come to see how radical life change life change that affects people to the core, life change that sinks down deep into the the deepest and most intimate parts of us, we're going to see how that kind of change happens. Because again, if Acts is like a scrapbook of testaments of God's power in the early church, if Acts is a book that's all about big change happening, if Acts teaches us that change is possible, that God can bring about remarkable transformation and renewal, I think this morning we're going to see how that kind of change happens. How does that change happen? And Acts 10 and 11 gives us a clue. And I think we're going to come to the answer that this text provides by looking at two people who make two choices that have one common denominator. So two people uh, with two choices, one common denominator. That's our roadmap for this morning. So let's buckle up and get going. Uh, If you haven't already, would you join me in Acts chapter 10? It's page 918 on our community Bibles. Uh, Acts chapter 10, Makai already read it so beautifully, but let's look back at verse 1 there, Acts 10.1, Luke writes this, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God, and about the ninth hour of the day, He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. Okay, so let's stop there. In the first three verses of Acts chapter 10, Luke introduces us to a man named Cornelius. He's one of the two people we'll be focusing on this morning, right? So two people, two choices, one common denominator. Start with Cornelius. Uh, Luke tells us that Cornelius is a centurion. That means he's a military leader of considerable rank, and it means that he's a sharp and decisive thinker. In fact, the ancient historian Polybius says that centurions were selected not so much for their daring courage, they didn't need to be the bravest folks in the bunch, but they were selected for their deliberation, 
constancy and strength of mind. So Cornelius is a man of status. Cornelius is a real sharp dude. And our text tells us he's a man of good behavior. He gives generously to those in need. And perhaps most surprisingly, we hear in the book of Acts that Cornelius, unlike other Roman leaders, had an interest in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what Luke means when he describes Cornelius as a devout man who feared God. Cornelius is what historians have come to call like a God-fear, which is a technical term for a non-Jewish person who is interested in the God of Judaism. And this sets Cornelius apart because as a Roman soldier, it would have been Cornelius's job to, to worship the Roman gods. It's his patriotic duty to honor and worship these gods that were said to give Rome their military strength and power. But instead... Cornelius shows interest in the God, right, in the religious practices of an impressed ethnic group that, in fact, his own military was charged with monitoring and suppressing. And so we don't know why Cornelius was interested in Judaism. Maybe he'd grown tired of Rome's gods, or maybe he'd met like a Jewish person that really impressed him. History doesn't say that, but we know that Cornelius was educated. We know he was a person of high status. And we know that he had sympathies towards the ancient God of Judaism, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Ruth, the God of the Hebrew scriptures, right? The God who claimed to be the one true God, the only God. And Cornelius is interested in this God. And so we see in the text that he, he prayed to that God. He lived generously as people who followed that God did. And then one afternoon at about three o'clock in the afternoon, Cornelius is praying, or uh, it says that a, a vision came to Cornelius. The angel of God appeared to Cornelius and said, hey, Cornelius, uh, God in heaven has been watching you, and he's noticed that you're a man of great virtue. Uh, you haven't succumbed to corruption like other soldiers have. Uh, you haven't been kind of prone to bribes as men of your stature are. You, you're praying, you're giving, you treat your soldiers well. Hey, God has noticed that, but there's something that you're missing, there's something you don't quite see or understand yet. There's a truth you haven't yet embraced. And so why don't you send some of your men to Joppa to find a man named Peter? He's got something to tell you. So Cornelius, recognizing that this vision is something special, uh, recognizing that he's been given a very specific direction from God, he responds immediately and sends some men to find Peter. Are you with me? So that's the first person. We said this morning we're looking at two people, two choices, one common denominator. First person we get introduced to in Acts 10 is Cornelius, the centurion. Uh, two people. That's the first one. Let's learn about the second person now. That's Peter. So while everything with Cornelius is going down in Caesarea, Peter, the disciple of Jesus, is staying in Joppa. Now we know from Acts 9 that in Joppa, Peter had been sharing the good news about who Jesus was. He'd been doing some miracles there. He wound up staying with this guy named Simon who tans animal skins and like treats them. And so Peter's been in Joppa for a while. And as he continues to serve as a faithful witness to Jesus' resurrection there in Joppa, uh, Peter also maintains the practices of his Jewish faith. Because you see, Peter had grown up respecting kosher dietary laws. He'd memorized the Ten Commandments as a kid. He knew Jewish history well. And so like any good Jewish person, we can reasonably suppose that Peter prayed at three times a day, right? He had his morning prayer, his afternoon prayer, his evening prayer. I mean, it just so happened that the day after Cornelius received his vision, Peter's going to pray in the afternoon, and actually he's going up to a roof to pray, which was a common practice in the Mediterranean, because if you needed some space, if you needed to get away, 
I know kind of where I grew up, if you need to get away, you went down to the basement, right? In the Mediterranean world, if you need to get away, you go up to the roof. And so Peter's going up to the roof, going to pray. Maybe this is one of those three times a day he prays as a faithful Jewish person. Um, So he heads up to the roof, and while he's praying, and I absolutely love this, uh, while Peter's praying there, the text says that he gets just a little bit hungry, which I don't know about you, but have you ever been there, church, right? It's like, I'm trying to pray, Lord, but those Oreos are calling my name. And so that gives me great comfort that Peter, the rock of the first century church, uh, needs a snack while he's in prayer. And so Peter, he's, he's praying, but then he gets a little bit hungry. And then in the same way that Cornelius gets a vision, the text says that Peter, too, sees something. He sees the heavens open up, and kind of this big sheet starts to descend. So I'm thinking like canopy bed, right? This canopy is coming down. And inside this canopy, there's all kinds of hoofed animals, reptiles, and birds, Now, Peter immediately recognizes that the animals and the birds and the reptiles in this sheet, they're all animals that have been declared unclean according to Jewish law. So they're probably things like pigs. Uh, Did you know owls were unclean? Uh, Fun fact, take that home with you. Camels, apparently, also unclean. Uh, So things coming down in the sheet, Peter sees this whole collection of animals, right? It's a petting zoo of unclean animals coming down. And then he hears instructions in this vision that says, get up kill and eat. And when Peter hears these words in this appearance, right in this vision, uh, Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Right, so I've never eaten anything that violates these kosher laws. But the voice came to him again a second time, said, what God has made clean, do not call common, do not call unclean. And this happened three times, and then the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So again, we said two people, two choices, one common denominator. Here's our two people, Cornelius and Peter. Uh, They're each going about their daily activity. Cornelius' living life is a Roman centurion. And and Peter is living life as a Jewish man who knows Jesus, to be sure, right? A disciple of Jesus, but who still keeps the dietary laws of his ancestors when suddenly both are interrupted by God. Right? Each of them receives a very specific message, a, a specific vision, a specific messenger comes from God that tells them that change is afoot. And I would say that this leads us to our first moment of insight this morning. If Acts is a book that talks about remarkable change, if Acts is like the scrapbook of God's greatest hits in the early church, if Acts is a book all about the power that God has to radically transform lives, and this morning we're asking the question, how does that kind of change happen? I think we first need to recognize that great change, life-transforming change, change that alters things both now and for eternity, change that reaches to the greatest depths within us, we need to recognize that that kind of change starts when God begins it. When it comes to that kind of change, God begins it. It's actually not some kind of process we can launch on our own. God begins it because the text is very clear. Cornelius and Peter weren't looking for change. You could argue that perhaps Cornelius was looking for God, right? He was interested in the Jewish God, but he wasn't interested in radically altering his life the way he lived it. And you might have said that Peter is looking for lunch, which would be true, but he wasn't looking for great change in his life. Neither was looking for radical, life-altering change to come their way and radically transform their habits and patterns and beliefs. They didn't wake up this morning seeking something new. They probably thought they were going to continue doing what they'd always done, but then God shows up and God began a process of change. 
And I would argue that this is how great change, life-altering change, again, a, a specific kind of change, the kind of change that transforms us from the inside out, I would, I would argue that this is how this kind of change always happens. Right? Big change, it, it comes about when God begins it. And I think that makes sense when we look at the entirety of Acts because whenever we see moments of great change in the book of Acts, they're all started with God's initiative. Uh, God begins great change in the church by sending the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. God begins great change in the life of the Apostle Paul by stopping him in the middle of the road on his way to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. When it comes to radical life-altering change in the book of Acts, God is always responsible. God begins it. And I think this is really important for us to grasp, church, both if we want to understand change and if we want to get our minds back into the narrative that Luke is telling us in Acts. Because we live in a time and we live in a place and in a culture that insists that change is something we pursue on our own, that change is a process we begin through our own deliberation. We uh, live in a culture that says that, hey, change is something you decide to do when you read whatever book came out in Oprah's book club, right? And let's be clear, I love Oprah and I know the latest book in her book club. If you know it, you can talk to me afterwards. It looks great. <laughs> But we live in a culture that says change comes about when you pursue it, when someone recommends that new diet to you, when someone tells you this is how you should schedule your time, when someone comes up and creeps in and says, hey, why don't you do this, and it'll, it'll radically transform you. And to be clear, uh, we can certainly learn that way, and changes in habits can come that way, and changes in practices can come that way, but not deep change, not transformative change, not life-altering change. Right? People suggesting a new habit or a new diet or a new book, that can't bring about unshakable peace even when you're in the middle of uncertainty. Uh, that can't bring about abundant joy when life keeps handing you lemons. Uh, that can't provide motivation for love and kindness even when others treat you poorly. Right? The kind of change processes we can initiate, the kind of change processes others can recommend to us, they are powerless, I'd argue, to change us and transform us at the deepest level. Right? Powerless to renew us at the core, powerless to make us into the people God designed us to be, to put us in proper relationship to God. They can make things easier, better, faster, but they can't change us to the core. When it comes to great change, life-altering change, change that matters both now and into eternity, uh, God begins it. God begins it. We don't start it on our own. We don't set out to accomplish it in our own power. Uh, that's something that Acts proves again and again and again. Great change comes throughout the book of Acts, but always when God begins it. So that's our first bit of insight for this morning. Now let's return to the narrative. We said we looked at two people, two choices. So we did the two people. Time for the two choices. Uh, back to the narrative. Peter and Cornelius, they've each received this vision. Cornelius was told to send men to find Peter. Uh, they've shown up now. Um, and Peter was told in his vision that he shouldn't eat anything unclean. So this is happening simultaneously. So Cornelius' men, they find Peter. They're in Joppa. And they invite Peter to come back with them to Caesarea to meet Cornelius. And meanwhile, while they're gone, Cornelius has gathered all his closest friends and family together. He said, hey, I got this vision. Someone special's coming to meet us here. So let's be ready to greet him when he arrives. And so Peter gets back to Caesarea. And the text says that when he steps into Cornelius's house, he said to them, right, said to Cornelius and his friends and his family, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now that's a great greeting. 
<laughs> Peter comes into the home and says, you know what? I would not normally do this. Uh, there's, there's some difference between us. You are aware, aren't you, that what I'm doing right now violates my moral code and my conscience. I wouldn't usually be caught dead in your space, but I'm, I'm going to do it. This isn't really my thing, but I had this dream yesterday. God showed up. He began something in me, right, because God begins great change. And so now here I am, and I, Peter, am doing something that I never dreamed I would do. Right? So again, two people, two choices. Here's the first of those two choices. Peter, in response to God's call to him, in response to God showing up and saying, hey, I'm about to begin some great change in your life, Peter chose to enter Cornelius' home even though the rules of his Jewish upbringing forbade it. I mean, Peter chose to take a very big step to do something that he would have never done on his own volition. He chose to enter Cornelius' home. I mean, this is big. This is to kind of deny what his parents taught him. This is to deny what the religious authorities before him had modeled to him. This was doing something radically different from what Peter had been raised to do simply because God had instructed him to do it. Peter made a huge choice, right? a life-altering choice that forever altered the trajectory of his life and the life of the church and the gospel message, and it's a choice he wouldn't have made on his own. He did it because God had started something in him. So that's the first choice. Peter chose to enter Cornelius' home, but now Cornelius. So Cornelius, he's honored to have Peter in his home. He's honored to have this, this disciple of great renown in his space speaking to people that he loves. And so Peter comes in. He says, hey, I wouldn't normally come in here. You know that this is like gross to me. And Cornelius says, sure, that's all right. Let me tell you about this dream I had. And so Cornelius recounts his vision to Peter. And Peter, upon hearing it, opened his mouth and he said, hey, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Right? So Peter's shown up, said, no thanks. Cornelius says, let me tell you about my dream. Peter says, hey, now look, now that I hear about what God's been doing in your life, and it seems like he started some process in you, Cornelius, that's about to come to a finish here in just a few moments, but God started something in you too. Hey, now I see Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, this declaration, friends, again, this shows a massive shift in Peter's thinking because observing dietary laws and observing laws that marked Jews is distinct from those around them. This had been Peter's custom. It was a defining part of his identity. But here now, Peter is with a non-Jewish person saying, hey, whoops, now I get it. Now it's become real to me that God doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't show partiality, but instead God openly receives anyone who fears him, who worships him, who recognizes him as God and does what is right and acceptable to him. And this understanding is setting up Peter for some bold witness that he's about to give and it'll bring change in Cornelius. But I just want you to see how this change, this was so fascinating to me in Peter, right here about Peter's story here in Acts. Peter's saying in this moment, hey, now I get it. Now I see, now I know God shows no favoritism, but this idea that God's message was for all people is something that Peter has been articulating and saying throughout the book of Acts. And I find this so insightful because I think it shows that there can be a difference sometimes in what people say or profess and what they actually believe at their core. Because you've got to remember in Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit came to the early church, 
it says that Peter, standing there with the 11 other apostles, lifted up his voice, addressed the crowd, and said, hey, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words that this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he's explaining everything that's happened. Folks are speaking in tongues. The spirits come there as they've been in Jerusalem. And he says, hey, in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour my spirit out on all flesh. Right? Notice all. And I will show wonders in heavens above and signs on earth below. And it shall come to pass that everyone, remember, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what's fascinating to me is that Peter has already preached that God's message of salvation is for everyone. In the Acts narrative, Peter has already declared that the gospel message, the message that changes lives, is for all people. Right, but it wasn't until he made his choice to show up at Cornelius' house. It wasn't until he decided to have some interaction and obedience to God. It wasn't until God started this deeper change process in his life and Peter responded accordingly in obedience that his core convictions started to shift. And he found himself standing in Cornelius' living room. Right, so Peter chose to do something brand new because God had started this change process in his life. And so now he is face to face with Cornelius. Cornelius says, I've had this dream as well. Peter says, okay, wait, now I see God is up to something. And then the text says that Peter shares plainly with Cornelius the testimony about who Jesus is. Peter says, hey, Cornelius, your, reputa your reputation has preceded you. We know you're one who fears the Jewish God, one who's interested in the Jewish God. Let me tell you about something that very same God has been up to. That God actually sent his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world to tell us that he's the Messiah, that that whole ancient scripture that you're interested in, this guy, Jesus, he's the Messiah that all those books were pointing to. And he came and he lived and he died for you and he rose again to show his power. And Cornelius, this is the person you've got to believe in. This is the person you've got to put your faith in. Peter lays it all out because now he sees in this moment that the gospel message really is for all people. Sure, he's preached it before. Now it's impacted him on a deep level. Now he's sharing it with another non-Jewish person in their living room. And the text says that while Peter was saying these things, while Peter's telling Cornelius that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, that Jesus is the one who makes all the difference, that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has remarkable power to change things and has impact, and that Cornelius should accept that Jesus is who he says he is. While he's saying these things, the text says that the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, so in other words, these Jewish people that had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, right? even on Cornelius and his family. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues, right? The Jewish people, they were hearing Cornelius' folks, they're now speaking in tongues, which was a sign that the Holy Spirit had come into their hearts and praising God. So when Cornelius heard this news, when he heard this news about who Jesus was and what Jesus' life and death meant for him, Cornelius made his own choice. He embraced that news as true. He accepted that the Jewish Messiah really was, in fact, Jesus, God's Savior, the one that the ancient text that he appreciated had foretold. And then it says the Holy Spirit, it came on Cornelius' family, and they, like the Jewish converts, they began to show these signs that showed, hey, they really are in God's family. They get it. They understand that Jesus makes all the difference. They've received God's Holy Spirit as a result. This is something brand new for Cornelius, right? So Peter experienced very great change, and so did Cornelius and his family. At this very moment, 
right? This Jewish person who traveled and said, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. Now Cornelius, he puts it all together and he says, man, this faith that I've been interested in, now I understand what it's all about and I'm gonna embrace that as true. I'm gonna become one who worships Jesus. So two people, Cornelius and Peter, two choices, Peter's decision to enter a Gentile home and Cornelius' decision to embrace Jesus as Lord, they resulted in remarkable change. Right, two people made two choices that resulted in remarkable change, life-altering change, great change that affected them to the core and impacted them both there in that present moment and for eternity. And so we had our first insight. We said when it comes to that kind of life-altering change, God begins it. But I think the second insight we gained of this kind of change, how does this kind of life-altering change happen? The second thing our text shows that, hey, God begins this kind of change, but then we must embrace it. When it comes to this kind of radical change that changes us from the inside out, God begins it, but we embrace it. We embrace it. We choose to go where God is leading us. We choose to trust what God is telling us. We choose to acknowledge what God has revealed to us, and we embrace the change that he's begun in us. Again, Cornelius and Peter didn't go looking for transformation. They didn't set out to experience some kind of radical change in their lives at this particular moment in history. But when God prompted something in them, when God showed up and said, hey, I've got something different for you and something better for you, they made choices to respond and to embrace the kind of change that God was initiating. They chose to say yes to that work that God was beginning. They listened when God showed up and spoke to them. So two people, two choices, one common denominator, Cornelius and Peter, chose to embrace the change that God was beginning in their lives, which, friends, leads us finally to, I think, the most important part of this morning's message and our exploration in this text together, the one common denominator the one thing that both Cornelius and Peter share, the one thing that's critical if we're going to experience deep, life-altering change in our own lives. Because indeed, the more I've reflected on this text, I'm convinced there's one posture that both Cornelius and Peter adopted that allowed them to experience this kind of change that God wanted to bring into their lives at the deepest level and the deepest parts of who they are. One common denominator in both their stories when it comes to the great change that they both experienced and then when it comes to change that we might be needing to experience in our own lives, we've got to remember that that kind of change is enabled by humility, right? God begins it, we embrace it, but humility enables it to happen. Humility enables remarkable change. Because you see, the, the great theologian N.T. Wright helped me see it so clearly this week as I was studying this text. He said, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, God breaks down the barrier between Jews and Gentiles, humiliating, by which he means humbling, right? Humbling both categories. Jews, because they apparently lose their privileged position, right, as the folks that are God's kind of special people, the only folks that God will interact with. So there's some humility that Peter has to embrace. And Gentiles, because they have to acknowledge a Jewish Messiah, so let me see if I can make this plain. In Acts chapter 10, 11, two people make two choices, but they have one thing in common. Both of them have to embrace humility. Each of them have to humble themselves. Peter makes a choice to disavow the privilege and entitlement that he could have claimed as a Jewish person who maintained dietary laws and separation from those who are unlike them. Peter has to say, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to associate with a person I've never associated with before. And Cornelius 
a Roman centurion, a man of high stature, a guy who's got a whole lot going on for him, makes a humble choice to embrace a crucified Jewish carpenter who he's been told is actually God's son and savior of the world. Both men make a choice that requires great humility. Both Peter and Cornelius embrace humility, and I think this is critical because when it comes to experiencing change in our lives, humility enables it. Humility enables it. Humility is what allows us to embrace and experience the work that God wants to do in the deepest parts of who we are. And so in the final moments that we have together, I want to talk about what this all means and what it means for us specifically. I want to talk about what humility looks like, and I want us to together to see if there are places in our own lives where we need to embrace humility and maybe experience change that God might be trying to begin in us. Because here's one thing I am convinced of for all of us. I know that we all need to change. We all need to change. We might need different types of change in this room, depending on where we are, either you know, spiritually or at different points in our life, but we all need to change. Uh, some of us need the kind of change that Cornelius embraced. We need to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. We need to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who God sent to redeem the world, and that his life, death, and resurrection, resurrection makes all the difference. We need to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. We need the kind of change that Cornelius experienced. Some of us need that kind of change, and some of us, maybe those of us who've known Jesus for a while, who've been around this church thing for a little bit, we need to embrace the kind of change that Peter experienced. We need a refreshing in our perspective. We need God to redirect us in our mission. We need God to say, hey, you've been kind of blind to this thing I'm doing, but now I need you to see things differently and respond differently. I'm convinced that all of us need some kind of change, that God is interested in starting change in us, and that this change, it's going to be enabled by humility. So what does humility look like? How could we embrace humility this week? What are patterns and, and kind of phrases or ideas that characterize humility? Well, here's a couple. Um, first, humility says I could be wrong. Humility says I could be wrong. Do you say I could be wrong? Uh, humility says I could be wrong. Humility says I could be wrong about the priorities that I've been pursuing. Humility says I could be wrong about these vices in my life that I've said are no big deal. Uh, humility says I could be wrong about spending every dime I make on me and me alone. Humility says, hey, I could be wrong for thinking that I'll be able to deal with that later when I have more time, that I can just put that off instead of going after it now. Uh, humility says, hey, I could be wrong about choosing to cheat here. Humility says I could be wrong about choosing to cut corners there. Uh, humility says I could be wrong in thinking that they'll never find out what I've really been up to. Humility says I could be wrong. You see, Peter recognized that he was wrong in looking down on the Gentiles. Again, he'd been preaching that God's gospel was to all people, but he didn't see it until God began this change process he responded with obedience, and then he recognized in humility, gosh, I've been wrong about how I treat these people that I've looked down on as second-class spiritual citizens. And Cornelius realized he was wrong in merely appreciating the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, instead of worshiping him as the one true God and recognizing that he had sent his Messiah, Jesus Christ, to redeem the world. Humility says, hey, I could be wrong. I could be wrong about this thing I've been pursuing. I could be wrong about this action I've been taking. I could be wrong about this thing that I've been laughing off or pushed aside or rescheduled and avoided. Humility says, hey, I could be wrong. 
And so I want to ask just in this moment, right, a sweet moment we have is a little bit of a larger family this morning. That's fine. But in this special moment, hey, is there anything that in this morning's sermon, as we've been talking about great change, is there any place where God's spirit may be speaking to you? I don't know if anyone's having a vision right now. Raise your hand if you are. But maybe God's spirit sometimes speaks quietly too, right? Not always in big dreams. And is there something that says, hey, I could be wrong about this. Hey, maybe God's trying to get my attention this morning and say, hey, Tyler, what you thought, this didn't matter, what you thought, that was no big deal. Hey, perhaps you're a little wrong about that. Maybe you're mistaken. Is there anywhere this morning where God's Spirit is gently saying, because God's Spirit rebukes gently, we learned that in our final sermon in Galatians, but the Spirit's always clear, saying, hey, you could be wrong here. You could be wrong. And humility is choosing to hear that and say, you know what, you're right, I could be wrong. Is anything coming to mind for you this morning? Humility enables change. Being able to say, hey, I could be wrong about that thing I've been doing. This is, this is something that's going to help us experience the kind of change God wants us to have in our lives. Humility says I could be wrong, and humility says, hey, I could be better. You know what? You're right. I could be better. Humility says that. Humility says I could be better off if I would trust this advice that I've been given. Humility says I would be, I'd probably be better off if I'd obey what God has instructed Uh, Humility says, you know what, I probably would be more supported if I asked for help. Uh, Humility says, you know what, I could likely sleep better if I would say I'm sorry. Uh, Humility says, you know what, I could probably engage that person better if I'd actually forgive. Humility recognizes that what God offers, what God instructs, what God lovingly directs his children to do is actually better than our current way of living. And humility says, you know what, I'm going to choose to embrace the thing that I never thought I'd do because I'm convinced that it could be better. So again, I want to ask this morning, church, is there something in your life where you've said, you know what, that's fine. That's fine. The way that is, that's, that's fine. That's no big deal. That's all right. We don't need to deal with that now. That, that's all right. That's fine. But now in this moment, as we're here together, as we're opening God's word, as I believe God's spirit is speaking to us, is there something where you've been saying, you know what, that's fine, but now you're thinking, you know what, maybe that could be better. Maybe that relationship, maybe that situation with that coworker, maybe, maybe that could be better if I would embrace that change, that attitude that I think God's trying to begin in me. Is there change that God's trying to begin in you this morning? If there is, and again, I recognize it's because God can be speaking to us all at all times. If there is, I gotta gotta invite you, church, to recognize, hey, if God's trying to begin it this morning, you need to embrace it. And you need to take a step in humility, whether it's asking for help or admitting that something's not working or reaching out to someone in the community group or acknowledging that it could be better and, and writing it on a prayer card, letting Gabe and I follow up, whatever it might be. You need to know that, hey, if God's beginning something this morning, the best thing I could do is embrace it and in humility, seek assistance and help for change. Because again, we opened our time together this morning by saying that Acts is a scrapbook that contains the stories of transformed lives. Acts, if you read the whole book in one sitting, it is like the greatest hits, big moment after big moment after big moment of God doing radical, transforming work. It's the narrative of real people who thousands of years ago experienced God's power in their lives and were totally different as a result. That's the story of Acts. And so as our time together closes today, as we wrap up these chapters of Acts and prepare to study this book for what's going to last all the way till August. So again, I said buckle in this morning, but we're in this ride for a while. (laughs) 
I want to ask just this final question. This is the book we're in till summer's end. This is a book about changed lives. This morning we tried to get an idea for how does change happen in our lives. But this one final question this morning, I just want to ask you, hey, what story do you want to tell? What story do you want to tell? Do you want to tell a story that I would say just from my line of work, getting to hear about people's lives, a story that's all too common, right? A story that says, you know what? This is just how it's always been. Hey, this is how I've always done it. Uh, this is about as good as I thought it could be. Um, this is, a, you know, one of those stories where, hey, I, I got here and now this is just kind of what I deal with and maybe I could have said something sooner, but hey, this is just what life's like for grown-ups, right? Do you want to tell that kind of story? Is that the story you want your life to communicate? Or, in light of the radical change that both Cornelius and Peter experience in the book of Acts, in light of the change that I think God wants to begin in all of our lives, in light of the truth that I'm convinced that God's Spirit is always speaking, always rebuking His people, always trying to encourage us towards what's better, toward the fullness of life that God has for us, do you want to tell a story that says, you know what, I was going this way, but then God showed up. I was pursuing this thing, but then, man, I had a moment. It might not have been a dream, but I was certainly hungry in the midst of it. But God showed up and said, hey, why don't you go here instead? Do you want to tell a story that says, you know what, I recognized that I was wrong, so then I acted, then I embraced what God was up to, then I humbled myself and sought help or admitted that I needed assistance and it made all the difference. What story do you want to tell? Again, the book of Acts tells the story of remarkable change experienced by people who knew God deeply thousands of years ago. And I know there's so many similar stories in this room this morning, but all those stories begin with God, right? God begins great change, but they happen when we embrace it and when we step forward in humility. What story do you want to tell with your life? How might God be prompting you to embrace change that he wants to start in your life this morning? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, it's, uh, it's exciting to be back in Acts because it is a testament to your power. And God, you are powerful. You're able to transform us from the inside out. And so, Lord, we ask this morning uh, that you would do your transforming work in us, that you would change us uh, deeply and completely. We know that you begin work, so let us be people that respond to the work you're doing. Uh, let us be people who embrace it with humility. And God, we ask that you uh, would continue to transform us and restore us because we know that's what you're up to. And so help us in this process. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen.